So this week we have an interview with Joe Weisberg, the creator of The Americans, this very popular show about KGB spies in the United States. And I was, you know, to kind of get to get into this interview, I'm interested in in how did you both? Why are you interested in Russia? Why don't we start with you, Rusana, since you are, you know, you grew up there. <laughs> sure. Um, I guess I will interpret this question professionally, right? Why am I doing my research in Russia? Um, so I moved to the U.S. a while ago, back in 2010. And so I think by the time I got into my Ph.D. program, I developed a sort of necessary distance to look at, at Russia with this defamiliarized gaze. It's funny, though, right when I moved to California, the opposite thing happened. I felt like my identity as a Russian became much more salient and prominent just because the people around me saw me as a Russian and would ask me all these questions of like, well, like, is it true that in Siberia, dot, dot, dot. And it's funny because it was in the U.S. that for the first time I felt like, well, I am Russian uh, and maybe not even like not so much Russian as like a Siberian. I feel that kind of identity emerged through those conversations and interactions and the gaze of the other at me, right? But then I think at some point later, uh, I saw this documentary called The Linguists. And at the time I was still doing sociolinguistics uh, and the opening scene of this movie shot by two American linguists happens in Tomsk, in my hometown, right? Oh. So they they travel around the world documenting um, indigenous languages that are on their way out, right? Um, trying to save what is left. And I was like, why the hell are these two Americans <laughs> going to my hometown and like taking interest in something that I've never even heard of, like the Chulim people. I'm like, well, what the hell is that? And I don't know, that just sparked my interest in indigenous people in Siberia and all that. I guess in a way, maybe it's similar to what Joe is going to talk about, right? That it's constantly with through this encounter with the other and by moving between these two spaces that I don't know, you see the contrast, you see the difference, it becomes much more prominent for you. Hmm. What about you, Margaret? Well, I guess I'll start from the opposite angle, <laughs> not professional, but personal, because that is really where it started for me. Um, being, I'm a first generation Russian, well, I guess, American. My parents were Russian Jews in the Soviet Union. So, and I grew up in like these really rural areas where there was like no one else that was like me no one thought I, no one under no one felt like they saw me <laughs> so I was trying to it like forced me to really consider those identities as like American Russian Jewish like what are those things what do they mean and I, I need to put myself together here like who am I <laughs> um 
So, and I see too that like a lot of first generation immigrants feel this constant like pushing and pulling of values and identity and like empty spaces where values and identities are missing. My studying Russia comes from my wanting to understand more seriously where those chasms that I felt in my soul, you know, to be romantic lie. So what does it mean to feel like, what does it mean to be American? Uh, what does it feel like to be a first generation Russian Jew? And how do those feelings play off of each other and synthesize into like one dynamic that is myself? And of course, this is a question that I haven't answered yet. <laughs> And probably never will completely, but that's kind of how it became this mission of mine. Um, so my interests definitely have narcissistic roots, um, but they've developed beyond myself at this point. I mean, now there's this culture and there's this people that I love and I have this deep and profound respect for. And there's this place called Russia where I have childhood memories and and, you know, it's so it is personal, but it's also taught me about authenticity, honor, art, love, fear, in a way that I think that being an, Amer um, an American has failed to. Not that um, American, you know, not that America is just totally devoid of those things, but because the tables turn the other way too. But that's the personal aspect. And then professionally, um, like it kind of became this ideological, like political game, like stretching and twisting these personal lessons and identity politics that I've learned um, to try to understand the people around me, the people that I love, but also the world that I live in. And to steal like Emma Goldman's thought, <laughs> she said one time, it's just this simple thought, but I, I really liked it, that America and Russia are the two most interesting places in the world. But you know, I wanted to say something like, and I don't know if like Margaret, you ever feel that way. Like, Ever since moving to the U.S., I feel like I perpetually live in this gray zone of not being quite there and not being quite here. It's like yeah. whenever I'm whenever I'm in the U.S., I feel like oh, like I don't quite belong. And then I travel back to Russia, expecting to find that lost home, right? Yeah. Um, and earlier I said like this defamiliarized gaze. It's like yeah, like. In reality, when I go back, I feel like I do not recognize the place that I have left anymore. Um, and I kind of have to discover it anew as like a kind of like a stranger, a stranger who's been traveling for too long or something. I mean, I started off saying that like my interests come, my interests started with being like American, Russian and Jewish at the same time. But really, it's that I'm none of those things. I mean, I can just like claim those identities, but I don't actually feel like, I mean, talk about Jewish, I'm barely Jewish. Russian, my, my parents who are from Russia say you're not Russian. And American, my friends who are American say you're not American. So like all of the people that belong to the communities that I can claim identity towards deny me, which is fine because, I mean, they're denying me because I'm probably I don't fit in the, in the thing anyway. So it is this weird weird space. It's totally a gray zone. You just have to like create yourself. Put your. That's why I said like, it all started with just trying to like put myself together, like a puzzle. You know, it's it's interesting because at at first and and when I asked this question in the beginning. I asked it because on on some level, I find Joe's personal exploration 
vis-a-vis his relationship with Russia kind of odd. But after hearing both of you, it actually isn't that odd at all in the sense of how the for us to understand ourselves and where we fit or don't fit or the gray zone, where even if we to recognize we live in a gray zone, for example, um, it's in relationship to another, right? You don't like you you don't I mean, I would I would suspect, Rusana, that I mean, from what you said, you didn't become quote unquote Russian until you left. Because it was never it was never as much of an issue in your daily life. Whereas now Americans and and I'm certainly guilty of this myself. See you first and foremost through a, le- a Russian lens, right? Through a through a screen or something. Um, so yeah, it's like a shelf that you live on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in that respect, like I mean, maybe maybe Joe isn't all that different than any of us in terms of trying to figure out who we are. We just we just maybe pick different others, and for whatever reason, Russia was his other. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I remember talking about this with my students in the classroom when we were discussing identity. Identity is never simply a declaration that I like I am dot dot dot. It's always a negotiation. And if the other does not recognize you as such, I mean, you can say all you want, but it's not going to be accepted. And the gaze that you need is not going to be returned to you, right? And so, um, yeah, and so depending on, like, who are you negotiating with, your identity may um, shift. And that brings the point, too, um, when you said the gaze that you need is not going to be returned to you. This goes back to, to like, the whole identity politics thing. Like, why, again, why, why study Russia? Did I need people to recognize that I'm Russian? And then like, what did that actually mean? What did I want people to see in me that I thought that I saw in Russia? So it's like this weird like ping-ponging game of like, um, when you demand or like control some kind of identity, you really just have these stereotypes that you want people to use for you. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who get monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. So if you want to support this podcast, please join the Table of Ranks by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or you can go directly to the srbpodcast.org website and hit the Patreon button and become a supporter of the podcast by joining the Table of Ranks. Okay, Rusana, why don't you uh, introduce our guest Sure. Joe Weisberg grew up in Chicago. He worked in the CIA's Directorate of Operations in the early 1990s. After leaving the agency, he worked as a novelist and a teacher. Weisberg created FX Network's critically acclaimed and Emmy-winning drama series, The Americans, 
on which he served as a co-showrunner. He's the author of Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy from the Second Cold War, published by Public Affairs. Here's Joe Weisberg. So, Joe, it's really nice to talk to you. And it was really, I actually found, I should tell the story of how I found out that you were a listener. Um, uh, I think, I guess it's a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Michael Edov. Um, happened to mention that you were a listener. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that I actually reached out to people who have some notoriety. So it's really nice to talk to you. And and the fact that you wrote this book, um, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy from the second Cold War. And I was curious, like, you know, what, what are you trying to say with this book? Sean, I think that the, if I were to try to encapsulate one thing I'm trying to get across, it's that I used to be someone with a very narrow, one-dimensional view about the Soviet Union and about Russia and about everything else. And the Soviet Union and Russia, the history and the politics became in, in part kind of a vehicle for me to learn how to expand my own way of thinking about everything. And what I learned once I could see it was that my one-dimensional views were off in a pretty profound way, that the Soviet Union and Russia were both very complicated places with good sides, bad sides, enormous, endless nuance and subtlety. We tend to understand that instinctively about our own country, but it's easy to miss it about another country. So in a sense, I'm, you know, I think there's no deny. I want to deny it, but I can't deny it that I'm sort of proselytizing a little bit for people with a black and white view, which I don't know what percentage of people that is, but it's not low to find a way to expand their view out and see things a little more broadly, be a little less judgmental and kind of take note of how their own personal views, experiences, and emotions are guiding their politics. You know, it's also interesting too, because you know, though you have a, a background in Russian studies, you you were part of the CIA for a brief period of time, and of course, you created this show, The Americans. And and what's interesting in the book, you 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 say how that process, these three things, events or whatever moments of your life are all tied as part of this journey. And I'm I'm just curious, like, what made you like decide to write a book? Like, why you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in a weird way, it's I have a very specific answer to that because. Although I've been thinking seriously about these issues my whole life uh, and had a lot of ideas about them, it did not occur to me to write a book. And then uh, I got a call one day from an old friend who was still working at the CIA, and he'd been put in charge of a lecture program. And he said, "Do you want to come give a lecture?" And I, you know, I was at the CIA for a pretty brief period, you know, just about three and a half years in my mid twenties. You know, it was kind of a lifetime ago, and I'd never been back. I didn't even really think you could go back. Um, and now in my, I guess I was probably about in my mid forties at that point. Uh, I, I didn't really want to do it. And I, I thought, I thought I said, no, thank I kind of begged off and, and said no. And then I started wandering the streets, which is what I do when my brain is busy. And I started thinking about what I would say if I did give a lecture there. And I immediately knew that the thing I had to talk about was the development of my own thinking and feeling about the Soviet Union and how it applied to modern day Russia. And as I started to put the ideas together, I started to also feel that in a way, 
doing that at the CIA would be great. I mean, it would be a little weird and I might have a very negative response, but also my experience there is people are, are open and interested. So it would really be, you know, going to the organization founded to fight the Soviet Union, that appealed to me. And I ended up sort of writing an outline for the speech in pretty great detail. And I called my friend back. I said, I changed my mind. I want to come give the speech. And he said, great, your topic is counterintelligence. <laughs> and I said, well, what, I don't get to pick the topic? And he said, no. And I said, well, I don't really know anything about counterintelligence. He said, you'll figure it out. So I did not give the speech. And I started now recognizing I was pretty disappointed. I had really wanted to share these ideas and sort of my own journey. And I thought, well, I already have the outline. Why not write a book? That is a bit disappointing that he's like, okay, you need to talk on this, right? I mean, you know, Rusana? Yeah, I had a follow-up question on something Joe uh, said earlier. Uh, you mentioned that uh, a lot of Americans have a two-dimensional view of um, the Soviet Union and of Russia. Um, and I was reflecting on my own experience living here in Sahalin in Russia. And I feel like Russians tend to think about the U.S. a lot, like all the way, you know, thinking about and like asking me whether is it true that all Americans are fat to, to, you know, like, why did you guys get involved in Afghanistan or in like, you know, debates about the second Cold War? In a nutshell, like a lot of people are concerned with the U.S.-Russia relations. And I wonder if it's the same for Americans, in your view, um, and if it might have changed over the course of um, your life. I feel that, well, let me say a couple of different things. During the Soviet period, uh, I think there was a widespread interest um, and a lot of, for a lot of us, almost an obsession. Uh, and I think the, you know, from what I read and heard about the Soviet Union, that was mutual. And the one dimensionality of it was probably mutual too. You know, I, I talk a lot more about America because in a way the book is speaking to Americans and saying, here's what we can do. It's not as much my place to speak to Russians, but I don't think that one dimensionality is limited to any you know particular nation. Um, but after the cold first Cold War ended, I think the interest dropped precipitously. And it was something that very few people were interested in or talked about. The number of obsessives went way, way down. Uh, and the next thing I would say is that with all the issues around the election interference, it skyrocketed back up. I don't know how to compare it to where it once was, but the sort of you know fascination, obsession fueled by fear and anger uh, returned. You know, say something to that. You know, I have to say that in in reflecting on, and I completely agree with you said, Joe, about the ups and downs of interests. But I do feel that in the Cold War proper, the the interest, however you know, distorted the conclusions were made about Soviet life and these things and propaganda, putting all that aside, I do think there is a genuine interest to understand what the Soviet Union was, despite all of the limitations. With the new crop of like, you know, post-2016, I I think I get the sense that the the desire to understand Russia and its motives is far more superficial. Um, it's mostly, I mean, the way I see it is it's almost like looking in a distorted mirror and not really getting past that surface. 
I'm wondering if you have any, you know, reflections on that. I really agree with that. I hadn't thought of it in, in quite those terms, but it, it sounds exactly right to me. In a way, I wonder if the issue is that the Soviet Union had a kind of inherent fascination for a lot of Americans because it was so different. It was so odd. It was based on completely different principles. It was just it just drew you in. I mean, for those of us who studied it, I, I write about this in the book a little bit that I, I loved the Soviet Union. I, I hated it, but I loved it. And Russia today just isn't, you know, isn't as different in those same ways. It, it's it's the ways in which it's different are more familiar. And so it doesn't, it doesn't sort of click that box. Now, I'll also say that if you go back to the desire to know the Soviet Union during the Cold War, Uh, I agree with you there as well. I mean, how many, you know, there were endless academic departments, endless journalists who were going to live there and and writing really thoughtful things about it. The barriers to uh, deeper understanding were probably more personal, like the ones I had, right? I was fascinated, but mostly my fascination wanted to discover different ways in which I was right. My fascination was geared towards proving in new and more ways that it was an evil empire. And there I, there were certainly outliers. There were certainly, you know, some people in, in academia who did not suffer from that and some outside academia as well. But, but, but I would say the mainstream uh, was pretty close to my own view and way of looking at it. And if you think about it now, I, I don't think that the, I don't think people necessarily have exactly the same blinders on. I, I think it's more what you said, that the interest is more superficial than it once was. Yeah. And the irony there too is that there's much more information about Russia available publicly today than there was during you know the Cold War, which is actually really an interesting, di- interesting irony. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I can examine this question just within myself because I'm deeply interested in Russia today, but my 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 main interest is sort of U.S.-Soviet relations and how the two countries can get along. I, I have never had for Russia today the same feeling of kind of studying a magical different world that I still have when I read about the Soviet Union. I think about, you know, some of your podcasts, for example. Let, let's compare, you know, television during the Soviet era to television now in Russia. Television now in Russia is a really interesting topic, and I'm interested in it. I've read a lot about it. I've thought a lot about it. It's very political, how it's controlled, how it's changed, how the government has taken over more, how propaganda from television influences the citizens, who watches, who doesn't. That's all fascinating. But compare that now to the Soviet TV programs that were talked about on your own podcast and how they worked and and the sort of their version of kind of a reality show and a game show. I, I just, I could, I, I'm smiling now when I think of that. I'm not really smiling when I think about the questions in Russia today. So how did you, how did you get interested in the Soviet Union and the history of uh, Russia? There were a couple early things that, you know, my father read aloud to my brother and I from the time we were like very young, like most parents, but he read us really sophisticated adult books starting when we were five or six. So he was reading us Tolstoy and Dostoevsky when I was maybe nine years old. And I and I loved that stuff. And then I took a Russian history course in high school that was very good. But I think the real thing was that as I became a kind of politically aware person, 
I had a couple of different influences working on me. One was that our entire culture was fundamentally obsessed with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. And then I also, you know, was Jewish and was would go to synagogue and constantly be sort of told about the refuseniks and how they were suffering and how they were being mistreated by the by the Russian or the Soviet authorities. And I think these combined to sort of give me something to be passionate about. I was ready to be political. And if I was going to be political, I wanted to care and be passionate. And so this was just sort of tailor-made. One of the things I find really interesting about your book, uh, and and quite, I would have to say as a, you know, from my perspective, quite controversial in, in some respects, not in a, you know, horrible way, but in an interesting way, your, the the narrative of your book is almost like, at least this is my reading, there's a lot of psychology in it, right? And you're kind of ruminating about, you know, your own development, you know, how you came upon certain ideas, how you changed your mind, certain moments in your life. And it's really kind of reads about kind of a, a you know, a deprogramming of sorts, a deprogramming from the Cold War. Um, talk about talk about the role of, of psychology uh, in in your process and and how has that kind of influenced your own kind of personal transformation? Yeah, it's good. first I want to say I like that. I wish I had thought of the phrase you know deprogramming for the Cold War because that really is right. Uh, I also was recently talking to a friend and found myself talking about anti anti semitism and I thought oh I wish I'd used that's that's a good one too. But um, yeah, you know, in a way, it both psychology and and very specifically therapy played a fundamental role in kind of the development of my views on this topic as in my views about everything and in who I am. But, you know, very specifically, I went into therapy in my kind of mid to late 20s, not because I was concerned that my views on the Soviet Union were too rigid, but because my father had died and I didn't really know what to to do with, with all the grief. So, I went in and started exploring myself and started exploring my feelings and started uncovering what it was that blocked me from really being able to deal with all the grief that I was experiencing. And then I just sort of kept going and kept working on myself and thinking about myself and learning about myself. And one of the things that came out, you know, within a few years was that there was a certain pretty intense rigidity to how I viewed myself and how I viewed other people. You know, I tended to be committed very strongly to the idea without unconsciously, but really in word too, that I was right about pretty much anything that I thought, believed, said, or felt. I was right. And people who disagreed with me were wrong. And I tended to move from there also to very intense judgment of people. You know, if they were wrong, often they were also bad right because they did bad things and they were bad people and i was a i was a good person and you know this had a very personal component it had to do with you know in my family things like you know people who got divorced were doing really a bad thing you you weren't supposed to be too judgmental of it cuz everybody was human but there was also was judgment because we weren't like that. We were we were in a way superior to that. By the way, if you met my parents, I don't think you'd really connect that to them. It was very deep and internal. They were lovely and not judgmental in most ways also, but there was also that. Uh, and then that also extended out to my political views, right? The Soviet Union was an evil empire. It was black and white. It was simple. We were the good guys. 
they were the bad guys. And as the as my ability to function on that level personally started to change, as I wanted to see things in a more complex way, to connect with people more broadly, to be more open to my own feelings in their enormous complexity, it just wasn't long before that started to apply to my politics and my political views too, because really politics are personal relationships writ large, right? It's it's countries full of people getting along and countries with both within their own countries and with other countries. So it, it started to kind of uh, really change all of that as well. You know, this leads me to questions about the creation of the Americans. And my first question is, would you have been able to make that show during the Cold War the way you did it? I really doubt it. I really doubt it. I I mean, not, let's say, let's say, let's say, and what I mean by that is to say you, uh, you have the orientation that you have right now. Would, and so the context of the Cold War, would you have been able to make that show the way you did it? I mean, you never know, but I, I would suspect not. I don't think anybody was quite ready during the Cold War to watch a show where essentially the heroes of the show were KGB officers who were humanized and presented as, you know, complex, in certain ways, decent people. Um, that would have been a bridge too far. I, uh, When we were making The Americans, I tended to think of it as, what about right now? And this was now quite a while ago, but could we make a show that treated Al-Qaeda in the same way? you know, within a within a decade of September 11. And I don't think so. By the way, I think Showtime did try something like that. I can't remember when it was. I think it was over a decade after September 11. And I don't think it, I don't think it worked or lasted, but, but it was possible to try it. Uh, but I, I do not see that the, that the America I was growing up in and in my twenties and would have, would have gone, well, really my teens would have uh, considered that. And have you gotten any notable or even something that kind of, you know, struck you in conversations or even reviews or whatever about the Americans that you were, you know, humanizing these so-called evil people? Uh, to my surprise, very rarely. Um, you know, when we set out to to make the show in the first place, there was tremendous concern about whether or not that would overwhelm the show and essentially nobody would watch it because of that. And it really didn't happen. So it was an issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a major concern. And because we were also, it wasn't just the whole idea of the show. We were having Philip and Elizabeth doing these horrible, horrible things. And in a sense, we were asking the audience to stay connected to them, even though they were doing these horrible things. I, I think any of us would have said it's 50-50 if this is going to have any audience or or essentially just be so attacked that it doesn't work. So, you know, the, another thing about the, um, in, in the creating of the Americans is, is it falls into your narrative of your own kind of personal reassessment of the Soviet Union and Russia. And, and you say at one point that the Americans turned your, this reassessment into a coherent idea. And I thought that was an interesting phrase to use, a coherent idea. It, what, what is, like, how did the Americans reflect that? Or, or what was that coherent idea? In, uh, in 2010, when all those Russian illegals were arrested, I got a call from a production company I had 
worked with saying, do you want to do a show based on this? And I started walking around and I thought, I think because of where I had come in my thinking about the Soviet Union, I fairly quickly thought the way to do this show is to have the KGB, to do it in the Soviet era and have the KGB officers be the heroes. Um, I had come to the point where I know I'd gotten out of my black and white thinking. I didn't believe the Soviet Union was an evil empire. Uh, and I had started even to quite radically shift my views of the KGB. There's a, I, I write about this a little bit in the book, but there's a book called Spy Handler by Viktor Cherkashin, who was a fairly important KGB officer who handled Ames and Hansen to the degree that Hansen was handled. But uh, anyway, he wrote this book and it was really eye-opening for me because it showed what life, at least in the foreign arm of the KGB, was really like and what the people were like. And I was still, even though my view had expanded considerably, I was still clinging to these notions of the KGB as a just fully evil instrument of the Soviet Communist Party and of the officers as essentially venal, murderous, you know, terrible in all ways. And after I read the book, I, which was very convincing, I, I saw that that was ridiculous. It wasn't that there weren't some people like that or some of those elements as there are in any intelligence agency, but more than anything else, Cherkashin and his friends and colleagues reminded me of me and my friends in the CIA, right? They were really patriotic. They mostly believed in the cause they were serving. They wanted to devote their lives to that. Um, so I had that, you know, I, I don't remember exactly when I read that. Obviously it came out after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, I think maybe around 95, but maybe it might've been later. I remember for sure. Um, anyhow, my, my views had, had, had changed fundamentally enough to conceive of a show where the KGB officers were the heroes. What happened then when we started making the show. And I should say, I didn't make this show by myself. I had a partner, Joel Fields, that I work with. I had an amazing staff of writers and producers, executives. It's a TV show is a giant group effort. So I'm, I'm now speaking for myself and my my views, not, not anybody else's. But in order to find storylines for the show, I started doing a sort of deeper level of research or sort of looking in corners and places I hadn't looked before. I started reading about the biological weapons program. Uh, there's an amazing book about that. I can't recall the title off the top of my head, but I think it's called Bio Warrior. No, I can't remember the name. Biohazard. Biohazard. I, 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 Maybe yeah. that's it. It's something like that. Anyway, the the guy who wrote it, who was like the deputy director of Biopreparat, which was the organization in charge of the program, just told all these amazing stories, including, for example, it wasn't his main topic, but he talked about when the KGB tried to recruit him to be an informant. And he told him, to, can I swear on this podcast? No, of course. He told him to fuck off and nothing happened. You know, they didn't do anything. There was there were no consequences for him. And that was really fascinating to me and, and became another part of kind of altering my view of the KGB. I do not mean to imply that there were never any consequences for anyone who refused to be an informant, but generally they operated more by inducement than by than than by punishment. And it was it was just more it was again a lot more complicated than I realized. Um, I read a great book called Afghansi by a former British ambassador to the Soviet Union, um, Roderick Braithwaite. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but there were so. By the time I was done with that book, I felt so uh, sympathetic and connected, not just to the Russian soldiers, the Soviet soldiers who were fighting the war, but to a certain degree, maybe sympathetic isn't quite the right word, but I felt more 
uh, related to an understanding of the Politburo because it goes through their decision-making process and what they dealt with. And it was so unlike anything that had been presented in the American press at the time. And it was so almost identical to what happened uh, with us in Vietnam, where the top leadership kind of knew they were making a mistake, knew it was going to be a quagmire, couldn't stop themselves because of all kinds of fear and anxiety. That book was also the first place where I ran into the idea that the Soviet press was anything other than a 100% propaganda tool. Uh, he, he talked about the way it served as an outlet for certain people and, and a way to get things accomplished and changed for certain people. I'm not saying those were the primary ways the press worked, but the press was not as one-dimensional as I had thought it was, which was really revelatory to me. So in making the show and, and look, and by the way, this was, I was also listening to your podcast a lot and, uh, just learning about all these different details kind of took this notion that I had that I had misunderstood it and it was a lot more complex and started filling in that complexity in the various places where I was learning. Right, right. Yeah, I had I had a couple of personal moments of re revelation like this. One was, well, two was when I was doing research. This has to do with the Soviet media. So I was doing research in the 1920s and and I was really surprised to see uh, Soviet officials referring to the press in archival documents as sources of information. And I was like, wait a second, don't they know <laughs> that this is all propaganda? <laughs> the second rev revelation, which is more interesting, is when I think it was Pravda interviewed Stalin's mother. And they published this interview with Stalin's mother. And Stalin apparently called up the editor of Pravda and basically said, what the fuck are you doing? Don't ever inter talk to my mother. Like he didn't want her to like spill like his childhood stories and stuff, which apparently she did in the interview <laughs> and he was pissed off. And I was like, wait a second. Like how did they publish a, an interview with Stalin's mother without having Stalin's pre-approval? <laughs> you know? And then the other, the last incidents I have was actually talking to Alex Hazanov, who you, you've talked to yourself and referred to in your book and talking about his, his research on tourists to the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s. And I asked him at some point about, we were talking about KGB surveillance. And the way he was explaining it was like how much of a shit show it was. And at some point I'm like, okay, so like they're producing all this, these reports and about informants and they're taking all this information and it doesn't seem like much of it was actually actionable. Like they didn't do anything with it. So I asked him like, so why are they, why are they doing all these reports? And he said, well, you know, look, the KGB is a big organization and they produce reports to just produce reports. And, and for me, that kind of like crystallized the idea that this is an institution like any other institution. And like you said, yeah, some aspects of it are horrible, but a lot of it is also just mundane. Yeah, probably most of it, right? Probably most of it. <laughs> <laughs> most of it. So that goes with my, that's a long, you know, preface to my question, which is like this idea of like seeing yourself as a former, you know, CIA person in this memoir of this KGB guy, like what, what did the, talk about this this dynamic between your experience in the CIA and how you understand the KGB. One of the, uh, as I said before, I was not at the CIA very long. I was there about three and a half years. I was in training most of the time I was there. I resigned before going on my uh, first assignment abroad. Um, despite all those limitations, 
um, I, I worked briefly in what are called these sort of interim assignments in quite a few different areas. And mostly because of sort of coincidences, ended up doing sort of file reviews and things where I had exposure to a pretty significant number of cases, by which I mean foreigners who were recruited to spy by the CIA, what intelligence they provided, and sort of what happened in their in their stories and in their lives. And I was shocked and dismayed to discover how insignificant the intelligence being gathered uh, seemed to me. Um, in order to sort of not exactly quantify it, but to understand it, I, I kind of came up with a test I would use, which was, is there any way this intelligence would impact anything anyone was doing or impact their way of seeing things enough that it might impact any policy or anything we would do? And over and over and over again, the answer was not even close. Now, although I believe that the cases I was looking at were, I know that they were across a kind of broad range of geographical areas. And I believe they, for kind of complicated re- reasons, I believe they represent the vast majority of CIA cases or did in the in the late, in the, in the early 90s. I, I do not claim they represent all cases. Um, I suspect there are a few um, that are quite valuable, um, although I'm not 100% positive. And the one or two times where I got near cases like that, they were not really better than the ones I'd been looking at. But what I started to understand was what a, what a bureaucratic system this was, the recruitment and running of human source intelligence at the, at the CIA, that it was very uh, directed by factors such as for a case officer to be promoted and to have a successful career, they had to recruit agents. And so the primary kind of motivation to recruit an agent was not necessarily that they had access or were likely to have access to really valuable information, which would be a kind of system that made sense, but rather that they could be recruited and that they could be counted. Um, And that, you know, tell me anything that sounds more bureaucratic than that, right? That is a classic example of bureaucracy in action. Well, I think that seeing that and being exposed to that kind of primed me to, it did not get me there right away at all, but it primed me to be aware and recognize that unsurprisingly, the KGB was also more a giant bureaucracy than any kind of super efficient or effective uh, mechanism and system for carrying out espionage. And by the way, as we both know, as bureaucratic as America can be, the Soviet Union was sort of in the major leagues compared to our minor leagues for bureaucracy. Yeah, go ahead, Rosanna. I was wondering, what are some of your favorite myths or tropes about the Soviet Union and Russia, perhaps some of them that you encountered while working at the CIA? The first thing that comes to mind is is post that period, but I was actually thinking about it a, a minute ago when we were talking, because I think it's related you know, there's a sort of, uh, I think, an unspoken assumption that as president of Russia, Putin is in control of and therefore responsible for everything that happens. I thought of this when you were talking about Stalin and the fact that, in fact, there could be an interview with his mother. He didn't even know about it. Um, It's very easy if we analogize to understand that the U.S. president does not have control over everything that happens in every uh, state, city, county, village, 
township in America, right? It's ridiculous. If you live in America, you understand that how what a laughable idea that is. But because for you know most people, Russia is a uh, faraway land, it appears as a monolith with a all powerful leader. A lot of the um, and that's and that's wrong and and it's a mistake and it's a failure to understand that the normalcy of Russian society. You know, one of the things I've learned by reading and listening to your podcast and all the amazing research people have been doing on it, particularly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, is that of course that was also true under Stalin as well, right? Stalin was probably as in control of an entire giant country as anybody could be. And of course, he didn't have anything remotely approaching complete control. And this was the sort of probably the fundamental fallacy of the totalitarian concept. Given given the the back to this CIA KGB thing, given the, as you said, like the majority of it is like mundane. Do you think that the mythic status of both of these organizations you know, the KGB as this like, you know, evil, sinister, you know, it's like a comic book villain, right? And the CIA and, and it particularly, you know, some of my friends on the left, you know, this all powerful, you know, being able to do whatever around the world that it wants, this kind of superhero status or supervillain status of both these institutions, how much do you think that that actually facilitates or justifies their own existence. <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I, I think that certainly in the case of the CIA, uh, it trades on that and and benefits from it. I, again, I'm not. I don't think this is really. I'm not saying this is a conscious process. I don't believe that. I don't think that. For example, I didn't. I don't know if I ran into a single person when I worked there who I would describe as cynical about their work at the CIA. That was not what it was. Uh, Rather, it was more that, you know, once people started investing in that career, their own inherent uh, belief, which like me, they came into the organization with, there was a strong incentive to continue believing. Um, and as more years went by, the more incentive. Um, but, you know, the ability to function and to have such a high level of funding and to have a degree of respect and to have a, a sound and positive conception of yourself as a sort of secret warrior, I think does depend on a myth. I think that, uh, you know, my sense is that that was true to a significant degree in the KGB as well. There was probably a higher degree of cynicism at the KGB, which is to say if there were very few cynics at the CIA, there were probably a considerable number in the KGB uh, who just spent too much time doing too much crappy, worthless work. Uh, and and people often point out also that as people who worked at the KGB, they often had a little more access to information about how their country really worked. And that sometimes bred cynicism as well. Uh, and so I, I think that it was you know more of a problem there, but it would be a huge mistake to believe that most people were cynical or that the leadership was cynical, which I think is demonstrably not true. Um, so, you know, the thing that I think about there, I don't know exactly how to answer the myth question there. I, I just don't know. But I was very struck to learn that in this, you know, Soviet society that suffered so much from corruption, uh, that the KGB was one of the least corrupt organizations and that that was a point of pride. 
and that it added to the esprit de corps. And, and that wasn't really myth. It, it's not that there was no corruption, but it was it was significantly more honest and on the straight straight and narrow than than other you know party government Soviet organizations. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine there's also a certain you know working for either of these organizations. There's an internal culture. I mean, as you said, you know, this idea of you being a secret warrior, you yourself is fighting the great fight. Like there's a certain ethics and, uh, you know, of being that comes with being a member of, you know, an employee of both of these organizations, right? You have a certain, you know, you're on the front lines, you have a certain duty and that feeds into, you know, I, I agree with you about the cynicism thing. Like that certainly feeds into the idea that you're not a cynic, right? You're doing the good, you're going, doing the good, you're fighting the good war, you're doing the good deeds. I think about this a, a lot in terms of Putin, because in the American media, you know, his previous service in the KGB is generally cited as evidence of him being uh, nefarious and duplicitous and, you know, primarily interested in co in covert ways of acting in the world and paranoid. And I, th I think there are are elements of truth to all that. I don't d dismiss that as, as part of his character and connected to intelligence work. But generally speaking, people go into intelligence work out of patriotism, out of belief in their country, out of a desire to support the positive sides of their system. It, from his own biography, it would certainly appear that that was also true of Putin. And the, you know, the story I, I think of with this most is when he was being interviewed, I think it was by Chris Wallace, but I forget it might have been Charlie Rose, but you know, he was faced, he was, you know, said Marco Rubio or whoever it was, just said that you're basically a gangster. And he said, How could I be a gangster? I served in the KGB. Now, if you if I if I had listened to him say that when I was 20 or 25, I would have thought he was just being a cynical liar. Having learned more about the KGB, I understood that that was a hundred percent sincere. That in that he had served in a fundamentally much less corrupt organization than others, which had a which was trying to do its job to protect the Soviet Communist Party, and and saying to him that that made him a gangster was as weird, really, as saying to somebody in the FBI that they were a gangster. Yeah, when you make the comparison between the KGB and the CIA, it um, yeah, really hits the <laughs> point. Because uh, no one would ever, yeah, like say anything like that about a CIA agent. Um, yeah, it's just like so fascinating to hear you um, share your personal reflections on the topic. Um, yeah, so I wanted to uh, go back to our conversation about your book and ask about one of the titles. So the middle section of your book is called Through the Fog, I See a Country. And I was wondering, what is the country that you see? What I mean by that really is that my f the fundamental – if I were to take my black and white view of the Soviet Union and versus America, good guys, bad guys, uh, evil empire, virtuous, uh, totalitarian versus democratic, free, open, um, The if I were to try to summarize the most – fundamental problem with my vision, it was that I did not see the Soviet Union as a full society. That because I live in America, because I grew up in America, although I had plenty of blinders on there too, and I'm, I'm sure still do in plenty of ways, I nevertheless 
automatically understood the complexity. You know, for even that example I was giving earlier, that the president of this country, because it's so big, isn't responsible for, you know, somebody getting murdered in San Francisco on a Tuesday night, right? That That's all intuitive and obvious if you live here. But that I, I reduced the Soviet Union to the point that I did not think about, know, or understand that it was a complex society. There is no society that isn't complex, but there was in my imagination. I built a non-complex thing called the Soviet Union. It was run by tyrants. It was populated somewhat, you know, remarkably, it was populated both by complete brainwashed robots and by people who all completely hated the system. And when I say remarkably, I don't mean it was half and half. I mean, in my imagination, everyone was both of those two things, right? Because that, that, because both of those served my, served what I wanted to see there in different ways. So when I say through the fog, I see a country, what I really mean is by learning the things that I talk about in that chapter about the Soviet Union and how it worked, I started to see a full country. You know, a lot of what you're saying in, in your reflections, I, I have to say that I, it, it's incredibly similar to my own experience in this sense of like how I understood the Soviet Union before I started learning about it. You know, just, I, I mean, just, I'll just give a, a really naive, but I think illustrative example. When I first went to Moscow, it really struck me that the buildings were painted in different colors because the the image I had in my head was this incredibly gray, drab, you know, place of like, you know, run by robots or, or, or inhabited by robots, right? And, and it's really amazing how in thinking back to, you know, those ideas that I had, A, how silly they sound in retrospect, but also how powerful because they came from somewhere. Um, so, you know, given the fact that you're a child of the Cold War, I'm a child of the Cold War, right? Um, and, and now there's a lot of talk of a, of a new Cold War. Um, and, and in fact, your book, you know, subtitled is to, to a way to get out of a second Cold War. What, what makes, what, what says Cold War to you about the current state of U.S.-Russia relations? I want to say, first of all, I don't, I don't know if it's that significant whether or not we call it that. You know, it's really essentially a label. Um, I think it's a good one. It, it rings true for me. But essentially, what's important is the conflict, what it's about, and how dangerous it is. And it doesn't seem to me that it is, you know, I'm sure it is not occupying the central place in the kind of American imagination that the original Cold War did. But it is, it seems to me, very dangerous. Um, the, you know, there's some of the obvious dangers, like two nuclear armed countries who can't get along with each other. Um, but also, if we just look at, you know, what happened with in 2016 and what continues to happen um, with Russia interfering in our elections and trying to influence our society in general, that's dangerous. I, I mean, it's horrible. And of course we do, you know, it's not a precise one-to-one analogy, but our sanctions are very damaging to them uh, for one. And of course we've been, of course we're involved in their internal politics as well. I don't know how to judge if that's damaging or not. It's it's just apparent. But 
I would certainly argue that the primary cause of all the uh, trouble we're having in our political system right now is internal, and there is no version of it being created by uh, Russian propaganda and disinformation. But I cannot find any way to quantify how much that might be making it worse. And if it's making it even a little worse, which it probably is, that's a disaster. That's really pouring fuel on a fire. So it's a dangerous conflict. And I don't I don't see the real purpose of it. And it seems to me we probably, not probably, I'm not sure we can get out of it. I think it's possible. And I try to explore ways to get out of it in the book. But it seems dangerous and combustible enough to, that to me, it feels like a Cold War. And by the way, I could go on. I mean, I've listed a couple of the primary dangers, but we all know there's you know conflict throughout Europe and questions about which direction. It's probably more dangerous as the real original Cold War was, of course, ultimately proved to be much more dangerous for the proxies. Uh, that may prove to be here true here too. I don't think that's apparent yet. You know, I, I, it brings me back uh, your comments about the, this issue of you know, are we in a cold war? What is it? You know, is it a label? Is it something more? It brings me back to something that I keep thinking about, and that is, and it, and it relates to your own story and mine too, to some extent. And and that, you know, our view of Russia or the Soviet Union during the Cold War was simplistic. And, you know, it was one dimensional. And there's something actually comforting about that. To, ha- to live in a world that you know who the enemy is, you know what they look like, you know who they are, right? And you know what you need to do, destroy them. And part of me thinks a lot of the rhetoric around a new Cold War, particularly with Russia, is somehow a form of nostalgia. Because we live in an incredibly, increasingly complex world with, you know, especially with social media and all sorts of communications and all of this stuff. And something about returning to a time of having a chief enemy that does two things. A, it gives the nation a mission and B, it binds the nation together because everyone can be against, say, you know, the communists, for example, or the Russians. I'm curious, like, if, you know, what you might think of this idea of of Cold War as some sort of, you know, unrecognized desire for a simpler time. I think that's right. You know, I can relate to that very personally because I had such a strong need to have passion and purpose and to find that. Uh, I looked towards a one-dimensional enemy who I could fight, and then that solved that problem for me, and it made me happy. <laughs> I mean, it's just to just to say it, it just made me happy. It was it was fun and it was good. And what a boy, I got to join the CIA. How great is that? I, I mean, it, it answered a lot of questions. the The problem with complexity is that it creates anxiety, right? Because with complexity, you don't really know the answers. You don't fully understand. You end up on a sort of permanent lifelong quest for understanding rather than a belief that you will find solutions. And that is creates anxiety. Masha Gessen writes about this in a, you know, its role in a more authoritarian society that the authoritarian system can solve that anxiety for a lot of people if they just believe in it and the system answers a lot of the questions for them. 
then they have less anxiety and are more at ease. But it's it's equally true for us. You know, we don't have a we don't have a government or a system solving the problem, but we can solve it ourselves by getting into the same one-dimensional way of sort of looking at the world. So it's 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 enormously appealing. The cost is sky high, right? The cost of that is you have these very dangerous conflicts. They're not just dangerous in theory, but again, getting back to the proxy battles, millions of people die. Um, and and you and you lose the opportunity to, you know, kind of see the richness of things, which even if it creates anxiety, is enormously, enormously appealing. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I'm um <laughs> I'm re-watching uh the Marvel series Loki and this idea of the glorious purpose. Uh and and it seems that you know, you know, reflecting on America and American society now, it, it seems that there is a loss of a so-called glorious purpose. Um and, and in some respects, it's not surprising that our society seems appears and I'm sure this can be debated, more, you know, fractious uh, and tribal than, say, it might have been in the past. Yeah, that can't be a coincidence. The timing of that cannot be coincidental. And it looks to me like having lost that enemy, we're now finding it in each other. I mean, we might have found it in China or, or some other external enemy. I don't know why this time it happened internally, but now the sort of fundamental dynamics of America divided in two, which with each side seeing the other as pretty much evil. And, you know, you get these other indications like the constant accusation that people who you disagree with are lying. This goes both ways. And that was very much the same in the Cold War. You know, my fundamental understanding and a lot of the, not just me, was th- was that the, the Soviet leadership and authorities and even people who believed in the system didn't. They didn't believe in it. They were cynical and everything they said was a lie. And that, of course, was false. Now, you know, I can, I imagined, and I, I had, I have to admit, I had these thoughts too when I was reading over your book. You know, I'm like, okay, I, I see where Joe's going. I see what he's doing. You know, he's trying to get us to, through a reflection on ourselves, to reflect on this other place, Soviet Union, Russia, you know, and and in that process, there is a there is a level of, you know, normalizing or even to the extreme whataboutism, um, which I, it's a term I don't really like, but whatever. And I can imagine um, people reading this book and having a similar, if not even more passionate reaction, <laughs> considering considering the politics of you know Russia today. How would you address some of these criticisms of like, you know, you're just normalizing this communist place. You're making them sound like, oh, they're just like us, blah, blah, blah. What would you say to that? The term normalizing is tricky because one meaning of that is that you're taking something uh, really abnormal and awful and trying to make it sound normal and not awful. Uh, That is not my intention. And I you know, go to great pains throughout the book to sort of make it clear that I see all the, you know, horrible things done in the Soviet Union and in, and in Russia and in America, and that I recognize them as horrible things. And my discussion of this is in no way meant to mitigate any of the horror, violence, terrible things that that countries do. 
But there's another, you know, sort of shade of the word normalization, which is to see that it is not as different as it seems from us, that it is more normal in the sense that countries and human nature produce these things. And that is really something I'm trying very hard to accomplish. Um, so I don't want people to look at the Soviet Union and and pay less attention to or be less moved or devastated by what happened in the gulag or what happened in the terror or what happened in the famines. I don't believe that there's anybody who is more disturbed by that than I am. I think most of us are really disturbed equally by that. There is a history of some people who denied it or denied it in part. And, and I'm, 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 t- I'm essentially very worried in the book about anybody lumping me in with that group. So I try to say over and over again, I don't, I not only don't deny it, here's, let me spell it out for you, you, you know, what happened. But what I'm concerned about is the perspective. I'm concerned about the perspective that because those things happen there, they are the bad guys and we are the good guys. So things like that don't happen here. Well, first of all, things like that do happen here. You know, they may have been a little earlier in our history, although not always and not necessarily. And they are not one-to-one equivalents of in terms of how many people died or what kind of horror happened because you can't really compare atrocities. You can't compare compare slavery to the gulag. It, there's no way to do it. And it's kind of diminishing to both. And it comes from a weird place, which is a competition about who's been worse. That competition is, is not useful. I think it obscures our view. So what I generally say about whataboutism uh, or you know, I, I do like the term because I think it's essentially the same as moral equivalence when I was younger. And it's a little more clear, like moral equivalence, you have to think about a little bit. What about is, and I, I get immediately what it means from the term. What, what, I, what I say about that is that there is a reason our brains produce the question, well, okay, yes, they did that, but didn't we do this, which is similar? Now, if the if if we produce that question and use it to diminish what they did, that's a mistake. But if we use it to say it's not a black and white world where only they do bad things, and so it becomes a tool for self-reflection, then it's very positive. And I, I believe that's what I, many, many brains, my own included, naturally do that. It's like a message from ourselves. Be careful about just judging the other guy. And in some cases, it's it's absolutely you know justifiable to say, yeah, what about that? <laughs> You know, like, yeah, what about that? Like, okay, you know, I understand the 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 need to, like, what about-ism is a way, it's actually, and this is why I'm uncomfortable with it a lot of times is because it's primarily used as a form of deflection, right? You could say, you know, Stalin, he killed a lot of people. Yeah, but, you know, Americans killed a lot of Native Americans and all of this. And it's like, okay, now, now we have to talk about America. We're not talking about Stalin anymore, right? But, and, and so... On the one hand, it's a deflection, but on the other hand, it's like, yeah, well, what about that? <laughs> what about the fact that you, you know, genocided Native Americans? Um, so it, it is a it is a tricky it is a tricky thing to get around um, in trying to reflect on, you know, the the fact that you know you have these acts of mass violence, and but under very different conditions and thinking about the particulars of them is is i think the key i have this i have this thing when i teach stalinism i tell my students the first day i said look if we're going to do this class to say 
Stalin was bad, then there's no point. If we're de- we're here to do a moral judgment on the on the Stalinist system, then we could just have that discussion, and a half an hour later we can be done, and we don't need a 15 week class, right? Because it's easy. So you know we have to suspend our moral moral objections to try to look at this place to understand like how did this you know these things happen, right? What are the contexts, etc. Yeah, well, I'll say two things about that. One is that. Uh, it took me about three minutes to say it, but you said it in, in a sentence, which is don't use whataboutism to deflect. That That's it. That's, that's I think, exactly the, the key. And then on, on the Stalin question, you know, I the way I tried to approach it in the book was, you know, to say, as you said, there's no, I don't know what the moral question, there's no moral question. The moral question is settled. Pretty ambiguous. I'm, <laughs> ambiguous. Yeah, right. Unambiguous. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's unambiguous. But what is very complicated and I find a challenge to understand is considering how unambiguous the moral question is, how does this guy have so much support? How did he have it then? How does he have it now? Those two things are related, but not the same. And that's a, that's a very important question. You've, you've gone through, you've written this book, you've gone through this personal journey, you know, really kind of self-reflective how do you understand the Soviet experience today that you that is, you know, a, a different or stands out to you from when, you know, years ago? I would almost say that I understand there was a complex Soviet experience. You know, my my position previously, which we've already discussed, included in it a kind of weird lack of interest in what, how people living in the Soviet Union were experiencing their lives there. It was too important to fit it into the mold that I needed it to fit into so that I could continue to have my views and my beliefs. And that's a danger of beliefs and belief systems. You will take what's out there and mold it into what you need for your belief system. Well, that's usually not going to capture too much of the complexity of, of what's going on. So, Look at the Soviet experience now, and and I think what you meant by that is, you know, what experience did Soviets have living under that system? They were as varied as the American experience. You know, we know that there are Americans having vastly different experiences and that it's really a mistake to generalize. Um, There's a great book um, about the Soviet baby boomers. Um, uh, I can't remember the- Don Raleigh. Either, what did he say? It's by Don Raleigh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it really just the the stories of these people's lives, which are told, you know, a lot through interviews, are so rich and so fully relatable. And they're just no different from experiences many of us would be having if we happen to be living in that society versus this one. The the breadth, let me put it this way: the breadth, pain, sorrow, joy, love, everything else of the human experience that they were having was not really, uh, I don't know what the word is exactly. I want to say it wasn't quite constrained by the political system. That's that's probably the wrong way to put it because there were constraints. Political systems do impose constraints and that one had particular constraints, but those constraints did not, let's put it this way, they did not dampen the range of human emotion. And so people were living their own full, rich lives, just as we do here. 
And I, I guess that's what I would say with the, the, fundal, the fundamental way I, I understand it. I, I can't generalize beyond that because there was too much experience. And and I, I to add to that, and and this is this goes to the wonderful book uh, that Alexei Yurchuk wrote. The 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 system itself actually facilitated that range of experiences and emotions. It wasn't just that range isn't despite the system and its many constraints. In many respects, it actually allowed for that to happen. Can you say something more about that? Like what what? So. For I'll give you an example. So take um, something I've studied a lot of, and that is the Young Communist League. Now, one of the interesting things about the Young Communist League, particularly beginning in the late fifties into the sixties, seventy into the seventies, is that it has a lot of um, it starts acquiring a lot of money because it's involved in various ventures. And one of the things it has, it has clubs. It has music clubs. And and what happens by the into the sixties and into the seventies, especially, is that these music clubs start hosting rock bands, which on the surface of it is, you know, quote unquote anti-Soviet. But the Komsomol provided the very institutions and material means to put on those shows. You see what I mean? That that it provided the um you know, foundations for people to realize their particular cultural interests and creative output. That, that's one of the aspects that I find so interesting about the Soviet Union is, is not just the constraints, which we can talk about a lot of, but also the possibilities. And, and you know, this goes to maybe a final question for you is that you say at, toward the end, like, you know, I can't remember the wording, but you basically say that it's 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 a tragedy that the Soviet Union collapsed. And and in that, I I keep thinking about that this and thinking about that the collapse as say a quote unquote tragedy. Um, it it by not thinking of it in those terms, we also lose sight of what possibilities that that potential system provided for people that maybe we might learn from in a positive way. That's, I agree with that strongly. You know, I I, cl- I try to clarify that had the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, during the height of Stalinism, I would not have felt that way. But the Soviet Union collapsed at a time when it was uh, undergoing profound change, and the sort of impetus and direction of the change was extremely humanistic and and positive. And one can, you know. Look, they 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 didn't manage to pull it off, so it, it's sort of meaningless to to speculate. But I don't think it's something to celebrate, falling apart or, or not working out. It was a vast, complex system with a lot of people who cared about it and believed in it. Many good intentions, not just the many failings. And you know, to your point about the Komsomol, you know, it was one of the really interesting things about the Soviet Union was that. You know, when we, we talk all the time about civil society now, and, and this was a system where essentially the the authorities tried to subsume and create civil society within the immediate political structure of the Communist Party. That's just such a totally different way of doing it. And, you know, we can see that there were a lot of flaws in that, a lot of things that didn't work out great. It's not an inherently bad idea. You know, it's, I don't think, I mean, I could see it, I could see it working out, I, you know, so 
it's, you know, even the boldness and beauty of the experiment, one doesn't want to celebrate that failing, right? It's a, it's a tragedy that that experiment failed as opposed to being successful on terms that we all could have been happy about. That was Joe Weisberg. Joe Weisberg grew up in Chicago. He worked in the CIA's Directorate of Operations in the early 1990s. After leaving the agency, he worked as a novelist and teacher. Weisberg created FX Network's critically acclaimed and Emmy-winning drama series, The Americans, on which he served as a co-showrunner. He's the author of Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy from the Second Cold War, published by Public Affairs. Okay, yeah, so I, I actually found this uh, conversation with Joe really interesting, mostly because of how self-reflective he was in, in his and the journey he took. Uh, you know, it's a very personal journey. So what are some of your thoughts, Rusana? So at, at one point, um, Joe Weisberg mentions that for him, the Soviet Union was a magical different world. And this magical world is what drew him to the CIA and to Russian studies, etc. And when we were doing the interview, to me, it sounded a little bit like an exoticization of the Soviet experience. However, I think it's useful to think about how a certain kind of exoticism, right, can lead to genuine engagement with a certain community or country. But I feel like oftentimes intellectual curiosity is fueled by unchecked romanticization and exoticization of sorts, you know, and I can I can speak for myself, right? So right now I work in the Far East, but previously for my master's, I did research on indigenous communities in Siberia, as I was saying in the introduction. And I remember vividly that many years ago, I was drawn to the subject just because I thought, oh my God, there are these different people uh, who, take such great care of nature, who preserve the traditions and lifestyles. That was my thinking. and That's where I was coming from. I wanted to know more about, you know, indigenous communities of the Tomsk region that I never heard of before. And obviously right now, I think that was very naive and, you know, erroneous in many ways. Um, but I had to go through that path, right? I, 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 let me... And let, me, let me just say something here because I, I actually um, agree with you, uh, first off. And second, um, I completely understand where Joe is coming from because I have a similar story and the sense of what attracted me to Russian history. I mean, first it was the history of the Soviet Union and it totally is exoticism. Um, and, and if you think back to Joe's comment at one point, he says, like, contemporary Russia doesn't do it for him as much. The Soviet experience, because it's so in his, you know, the way he portrayed it is so other that it's it's fascinating and it's, it's certainly exotic. And and I wouldn't have been interested, you know, in learning about Russia without that initial, you know, exoticism. You know, I've also gone beyond it too, but I have to say, I am not comfortable at saying that it's completely gone from my own thinking. I think there's still an underlying as much as I've tried to 
purge it. I mean, maybe this is also similar to Joe's personal transformation. As much as I try to purge it, there's something that still is underlying, something underlying my interest that remains, there's something exotic about that place, though I could not tell you what it is. It seems like he's, this mission, his mission is like trying to depoliticize Russians and the Russian experience. I wonder how much actually making the Americans, where you have to like humanize these characters, you have to give them histories, complex emotions, nuance. It kind of, I wonder how much that forced him to realize um, or like click that realization into place. I mean, it sounds like it was a really formative point in his personal journey. Um because the because of exactly what you said he he wanted to treat a subject with some sort of complexity and that required a form of humanization and you know i don't know if normalization is the right word but to to make i i tried to categorize it as this when i when i teach this history of the soviet union to try to get away from it as a abnormally existing system or society and try to try to frame it as just different. When I think about it, it is really hard to turn things that I supposedly know are true. Like you can say people, all people are people. And it's kind of makes the world seem like, you know, all handy dandy. But that's very different than actually internalizing and believing in these concepts and not having to actually convince myself and remind myself. Like, de-exoticizing Russia is different than, than uh, just knowing, I don't, just having this intuitive sense of like what it feels like to, to be there. Right, and, and I feel like um, I, I, talk, I talked a, about it a little bit during the interview, not very eloquently, <laughs> but I think that this constant back and forth, this constant comparison of U.S. and Russia really elucidates that some of the stereotypes and cliches that we have about each other, or about Russia in this case, are pretty laughable, right? He's talking about Putin, uh, who controls everything, and when you think about you know, a similar situation in the U.S., it just seems unthinkable, right? And it just makes you aware that, like, thinking in such terms about Russia is a totalitarian fantasy of sorts. Um, and so, yeah, like, Sean, you were saying earlier, I feel like moving between these two places is a great tool to complicate things and... Uh, purge the black and white picture that we might have of the other. Well, thanks. Thank you very much for both of your comments. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media, tell your friends and family about it uh, to get us more listeners. And you can always drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the srbpodcast.org website and let us know what you think of our interviews and our discussions and some of the wacky ideas we come up with as a result. And as always, we'd love to have your support. The SRB Podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free. 
uh, without any advertisements or paywalls. So uh, please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org and become a member of the Table of Ranks. Until next week. Bye. Love that you